Part Three of Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. Your Majesty, a report's just come in that there's a serious riot at the university. Between five and ten thousand students are attacking the administration center, lobbing stench bombs into it and threatening to hang Chancellor Kane. They have already overwhelmed and disarmed the campus police, and I've sent two companies of the Gendarme Riot Brigade under an officer I can trust to handle things firmly but intelligently. We don't want any indiscriminate stunning or tear-gassing or shooting. All sorts of people can have sons and daughters mixed up in a student riot. Yes, I seem to recall student riots in which the sons of His Late Highness Prince Travan and His Late Majesty Roderick Twenty Second were involved. He deliberated the point for a moment and added, This scarcely sounds like a frat fight or a panty raid, though. What seems to have triggered it? The story I got, a rather hysterical call for help from Kane himself, is that they're protesting an action of his and dismissing a faculty member. I have a couple of undercovers at the university, and I'm trying to contact them. I sent more undercovers who could pass for students ahead of the gendarmes to get the students' side of it and the names of the ringleaders. He glanced down at the indicator in front of him, which had begun to glow. If you'll pardon me, sir, Count Thompson's trying to get me. He may have particulars. I'll call your majesty back when I learn anything more." There hadn't been anything like that at the university within the memory of the oldest grad. Chancellor Kane, he knew, was a stupid and arrogant old windbag with a swollen sense of his own importance. He made a small bet with himself that the whole thing was Kane's fault, but he wondered what lay behind it and what would come out of it. Great plagues from little microbes start great and frightening changes." The screen got itself into an uproar, and he flipped the switch. It was Victor Ganze again. He looked as though his permanent toothache had deserted him for the moment. "'Sorry to bother your majesty, but it's all fixed up,' he reported. First citizen Iago agreed to alternate in precedence with King Ronulf, and Lord Koref has withdrawn all his objections. As far as I can see at present, there should be no trouble." Fine. I suppose you heard about the excitement at the university? Oh, yes, Your Majesty. Disgraceful affair. Simply shocking. What seems to have started it, have you heard? he asked. All I know is that the students were protesting the dismissal of a faculty member. He must have been exceptionally popular or else he got a more than ordinary raw deal from Kane. Well, as to that, sir, I can't say. Um, all I learned was that it was the result of some faculty squabble in one of the science departments. The grounds for the dismissal were insubordination and contempt for authority. I always thought that when authority began inspiring contempt it had stopped being authority. Did you say science? This isn't going to help Douglas and Thompson any. I'm afraid not, Your Majesty. Ganze didn't look particularly regretful. The news cartel's gotten hold of it and are using it. 
It'll be all over the Empire. He said that as though it meant something. Well, maybe it did. A lot of ministers and almost all the counselors spent most of their time worrying about what people on planets like Chirmosh and Zarathustra and Deidre and Quetzalcoatl might think, in ignorance of the fact that interest in empire politics varied inversely as the squared of the distance to Odin and the level of corruption and inefficiency of the local government. I notice you'll be at the bench luncheon. Do you think you could invite our guests, too? We could have an informal presentation before it starts. Can do? Good. I'll be seeing you there. When the screen was blanked, he returned to the reports, ran them off hastily to make sure that nothing had been red-starred, and called a robot to clear the projector. After a while Prince Trevon called again. Sorry to bother, Your Majesty. But I have most of the facts on the riot now. What happened was that Chancellor Kane sacked a professor of physics department under circumstances which aroused resentment among the science students. Some of them walked out of class and went to the stadium to hold a protest meeting, and the thing snowballed until half the students were in it. Kane lost his head and ordered the campus police to clear the stadium. The students rushed them and swamped them. I hope for their sakes that none of my men ever let anything like that happen. The man I sent, a Colonel Henderson, managed to talk the students into going back to the stadium and continuing the meeting under gendarme protection. Sounds like a good man. Very good, Your Majesty, especially in handling disturbances. I have complete confidence in him. He's also investigating the background of the affair. I'll give Your Majesty what he's learned to date. It seems that the head of the physics department, a Professor Nelsey Dundrick, had been conducting an experiment assisted by Professor Clint Ferres to establish more accurately the velocity of subnucleonic particles, uh, beta micropositos, I believe. Dandrick's story, as related to Henderson by Kane, is that he reached a limit and the apparatus began giving erratic results. Prince Trevon stopped to light a cigarette. At this point Professor Dandrick ordered the experiment stopped, and Professor Farris insisted on continuing. When Dandrick ordered the apparatus dismantled, Ferris became rather emotional about it, obscenely abusive and threatening, according to Dandrick. Dandrick complained to Cain. Cain ordered Ferris to apologize. Ferris refused, and Cain dismissed Ferris. Immediately the students went on strike. Ferris confirmed the whole story, and he added one small detail that Dandrick hadn't seen fit to mention. According to him, when these micropositos were accelerated beyond sixteen and a fraction times light speed, they began registering at the target before the source registered the emission. Yes, I— What did you say? Prince Trevon repeated it slowly, distinctly, and tonelessly. That was what I thought you said. Well, I'm going to insist on a complete investigation, including a repetition of the experiment, under direction of Professor Ferris. Yes, Your Majesty, and when that happens I mean to be on hand personally. 
If somebody is just before discovering time travel, I think security has a very substantial interest in it. The Prime Minister called back to confirm that First Citizen Yago and King Ranulf would be at the luncheon. The Chamberlain, Count Godvan, called with a long and dreary problem about the protocol for the banquet. Finally at noon he flashed a signal for General Dorfley, waited five minutes, and then left his desk and went out, to find the mad general and his wire-haired soldiers drawn up in the hall. There were more Thorns on the south upper terrace, and after a flurry of porting and presenting and ordering arms and hand-saluting, the Prime Minister advanced and escorted him to where the bench of councillors, all thirty of them, total age close to twenty-eight hundred years, were drawn up in a rough crescent behind the three distinguished guests. The King of Durandal wore a cloth of silver leotard and pink tights and a belt of gold links, on which he carried a jeweled dagger, only slightly thicker than a knitting needle. He was slender and willowy, and he had large and soulful eyes, and the royal beautician must have worked on him for a couple of hours. Wait till Maris sees this, oh, brother! Koref, the Lord Marshal, wore what was probably the standard costume of Durandal, a fairly long jerkin with short sleeves and knee-boots, and his dress-dagger looked as though it had been designed for use. Lord Koref looked as though he would be quite willing and able to use it. He was fleshy and full-faced, with hard muscles under the flesh. First Citizen Yago, People's Manager-in-Chief of and for the Planetary Commonwealth of Aditya, wore a one-piece white garment like a mechanic's coveralls, with the emblem of his government and the numeral one on his breast. He carried no dagger. If he had worn a dress weapon it would probably have been a slide rule. His head was completely shaven, and he had small pale eyes and a rat-trap mouth. He was regarding the Durandilians with a distaste that was all too evidently reciprocated. King Ranulf appeared to have won the toss for first presentation. He squeezed the imperial hand in both of his and looked up adoringly as he professed his deep honor and pleasure. Yago merely clasped both his hands in front of the emblem on his chest and raised them quickly to the level of his chin, saying, At the service of the imperial state, and adding, as though it hurt him, Your Imperial Majesty. Not being a chief of state, Lord Korov came third. He merely shook hands and said, A great honor, Your Imperial Majesty, and the thanks, both of myself and my royal master, for a most gracious reception. The attempt to grab first place having failed, he was more than willing to forget the whole subject. There was a chance that finding a way to dispose of the grain surplus might make the difference between his staying in power at home or not. Fortunately, the three guests had already met the bench of councillors. Immediately after the presentation of Lord Koref they all started the two hundred yards march to the luncheon pavilion, the King of Dorindal clinging to his left arm, and First Citizen Yago stumping dourly on his right, with Prince Ganze beyond him and Lord Koref on Ranulf's left. 
Do you plan to stay long on Odin?' he asked the king. "'Oh, I'd love to stay for simply months. Everything is so wonderful here in Asgard. It makes our little capital of Roncevaux seem so utterly provincial. I'm going to tell your majesty a secret. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can lure some of your wonderful ballet dancers back to Durandal with me. Aren't I a naughty, raiding your imperial majesty's theatres? In keeping with the traditions of your people, he replied gravely, you sword-worlders used to raid everywhere you went. I'm afraid those bad old days are long past, your imperial majesty, Lord Koreff said. But we sword-worlders got around the galaxy for a while. In fact, I seem to remember reading that some of our brethren from Morglay or Flamberge even occupied Aditya for a couple of centuries. Not that you'd guess to look at Aditya now. It was First Citizen Yago's turn to take precedence, the seat on the right of the throne chair. Lord Koreff sat on Ranulf's left, and to balance him, Prince Ganze sat beyond Yago and dutifully began inquiring of the people's manager-in-chief about the structure of his government, launching him on a monologue that promised to last at least half the luncheon. That left the King of Durandal to Paul. For a start he dropped a compliment on the cloth of silver leotard. King Ranulf laughed dulcetly, brushed the garment with his fingertips, and said that it was just a simple thing patterned after the Durandalian peasant costume. "'You have peasants on Durandal?' "'Oh, dear, yes! Such quaint, charming people! Of course they're all poor, and they wear such funny, ragged clothes, and travel about in rackety old air-cars. It's a wonder they don't fall apart in the air.' But they're so wonderfully happy and carefree. I often wish I were one of them instead of king. Non-working class, your imperial majesty, Lord Koreff explained. On Aditya, first citizen Yago declared, there are no classes, and on Aditya everybody works, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. On Aditya... An elderly counselor four places to the right of him said loudly to his neighbor, "'They don't call them classes. They call them sociological categories, and they have nineteen of them. And on Aditya they don't call them non-workers. They call them occupational reservists, and they have more of them than we do.' "'But, of course, I was born a king,' Ranulf said sadly and nobly. Oh, "'I have a duty to my people.' No, they don't vote at all, Lord Koreff was telling the councillor on his left. On Durandal you have to pay taxes before you can vote. On Aditya the crime of taxation does not exist, the first citizen told the Prime Minister. On Aditya the councillor four places down said to his neighbor, There's nothing to tax. The state owns all the property, and if the imperial constitution and the space navy left them, the state would own all the people, too. Don't tell me about Aditya. First big ship command I had was the old Invictus 374, and she was based on Aditya for four years, <laughs> and I'd sooner have spent that time in orbit around Niflheim. 
Now Paul remembered who he was. Old Admiral, now Prince Counselor, Gocklor. He and Prince Counselor Dorfle would get along famously. The Lord Marshal of Durandal was replying to some objection somebody had made. No, nothing of the sort. We hold the view that every civil or political right implies a civil or political obligation. The citizen has a right to protection from the realm, for instance. He therefore has the obligation to defend the realm, and his right to participate in the government of the realm includes his obligation to support the realm financially. Well, we tax only property. If a non-worker acquires taxable property, he has to go to work to earn the taxes. I might add that our non-workers are very careful to avoid acquiring taxable property. But if they don't have votes to sell, what do they live on? A counselor asked in bewilderment. The nobility supports them. The landowners, the trading barons, the industrial lords. The more non-working adherents they have, the greater their prestige. And the more rifles they could muster when they quarrel with their fellow nobles, of course. Besides, if we didn't do that, they'd turn brigand, and it costs less to support them than to have to hunt them out of the brush and hang them. On Aditya, brigandage does not exist. On Aditya, all the brigands belong to the secret police. Only on Aditya they don't call them secret police. They call them Servants of the People, Ninth Category. A shadow passed quickly over the pavilion, and then another. He glanced up quickly to see two long black troop carriers, emblazoned with the sun and cogwheel and armored fist of security, pass back of the octagon tower and let down on the north landing stage. A third followed. He rose quickly. Please remain seated, gentlemen, and continue with the luncheon. If you will excuse me for a moment, I'll be back directly. I hope, he added mentally. Captain General Dorfley, surrounded by a dozen officers, Thorin and human, had arrived on the lower terrace at the base of the octagon tower. They had a full Thorin rifle company with them. As he went down to them, Dorfley hurried forward. It has come, Your Majesty he said as soon as he could make himself heard without raising his voice. We are all ready to die with your majesty. Oh, I doubt it'll come to that, Harv, he said. But just to be on the safe side, take that company and the gentlemen who are with you and get up to the mountains and join the crown prince and his party. Here. He took a notepad from his belt pouch and wrote rapidly, sealing the note and giving it to Dorfle. Give this to his highness, and place yourself under his orders. I know he's just a boy, but he has a good head. Obey him exactly in everything, but under no circumstances return to the palace or allow him to return until I call you. Your majesty is ordering me away? The old soldier was aghast. An emperor who has a son can be spared. An emperor's son who is too young to marry can't. You know that. Harv Dorfley was only mad on one subject, and even within the frame of his madness he was intensely logical. He nodded. Yes, Your Majesty, 
We both serve the Empire as best we can, and I will guard the little Princess Olva, too." He grasped Paul's hand and said, "'Farewell, Your Majesty,' and dashed away, gathering his staff and the company of Thorans as he went. In an instant they had vanished down the nearest rampway. The Emperor watched their departure, and at the same time saw a big black aircar, bearing the three-mooned planet Argent on Sable, of Travan, let down onto the south landing stage, and another troop-carrier let down after it. Four men left the aircar. Yarn, Prince Travan, and three officers in the black of the security guard. Prince Gonze had also left the table. He came from one direction as Prince Stravon advanced from the other. They converged on the Emperor. "'What's happening here, Prince Stravon?' Prince Gonze demanded. "'Why are you bringing all these troops to the palace?' "'Your Majesty,' Prince Stravon said smoothly, "'I trust that you will pardon this disturbance. I'm sure nothing serious will happen, but I didn't dare take chances.' These students from the university are marching on the palace, perfectly peaceful and loyal procession. They're bringing a petition for your majesty, but on the way, while passing through a non-workers' district, they were attacked by a gang of hooligans connected with a voting-block boss called Nutchi the Knife. None of the students were hurt, and Colonel Henderson got the procession out of the district promptly and then dropped some of his men, who have since been reinforced, to deal with the hooligans. That's still going on, and these riots are like forest fires. You never know when they'll shift and get out of control. I hope the men I brought won't be needed here. Really, they're a reserve for the riot work. I won't commit them, though, until I'm sure the palace is safe. End of Part Three